Kent is. Uh, Lynn, 10 years ago, um, God sent him to us, used his gifts to uh, help us to work out some troubled times in our church. And the way the Lord worked through Lynn and uh, was just amazing. And our church is stronger and, and still is growing. Um, the family love that we have for each other is just amazing. Um, also, Lynn's here with his lovely wife, uh, Lois. And it's good to see her. I haven't seen her in a long time. Um, so I'd like you to welcome Lynn Kent. Thank you, Kevin. My goodness. You know, you folks, if salvation was by works rather than by grace, you guys would definitely be on the clear path because you came out at 8.30 service on the Sunday after Thanksgiving. I mean, that's big, big stuff. Just wide awake and a lot of fun, aren't you? Okay, that sounded pretty weak. You're wide awake and a lot of fun, right? All right, good. Let's have a little fun today, right? Okay, you guys always make Lois and I feel so welcome when we come, and we appreciate it so very much. We got great memories and a lot of friendships that uh, we gained from our two years with you. As Kevin said, 10 years ago, it's hard to believe. We have a son and his family. We have four children, and our youngest lives in uh, Syracuse with he and his wife and five children. And so that gets us uh, out to this part of the country at least once a year, if not twice a year, depending on how often your governor lets us in. Yeah, I tell you, you guys got borders around New York, so we're really glad that we could break through and come and join you at this time. Dave and I talk uh, periodically, so he keeps me up to date on the things that are going. And usually when I come into this area, we have lunch together. But you know he's never once come out to see me to have lunch. I can't believe it. It's kind of a one-sided relationship. We are thrilled uh, with the way that God continues to bless this dear church. Um, in our career, uh, Lois and I have... I've been an interim pastor for the last 15 years, and we've served uh, eight different churches across the country during that time, but we feel a special kin kinship with Seneca Community Church. Um, now we're, uh, I'm traveling on my fingertips now, uh, usually Zoom meetings. Uh, we're not being, a, we finished our last assignment in Nebraska about a little over a year ago. And uh, now I'm home and I'm coaching pastors and training pastors and conferencing with churches and doing all of those things. So it's a great season of our life right now, although I have to tell you, I, I definitely miss the adventures that we experienced during uh, the time that we were doing that on the road. Here's an understatement for you. The last year and a half, really now, almost two years, have been very challenging for individuals as well as for churches. After our last assignment in Nebraska that I mentioned, a lot of friends were concerned about us going out to Portland. By the way, that's Portland, Oregon, not, not the other Portland. So this is Portland, Oregon, which uh, is the area that we lived in. And we had people in Nebraska that were very concerned about us. I mean, obviously, there was the pandemic going on. But also at that time, we had riots uh, in Portland. We had wildfires uh, throughout the state of Oregon. And uh, it, was, it was definitely a very, very challenging time. Uh, to do all of that. The thing that sets this past year apart from anything else that we have gone through as a nation and as individuals and how is that it, affect, it has affected 
virtually every area of our lives. Think about what this time has done. It's threatened our health. It's threatened our lifespan, our lifestyle, our personal freedom. It's affected our jobs, our finances, our relationships. It's affected our emotional well-being, our mental health, our education, and our future planning. We tried to get back here twice in the last year, and we couldn't do it because of the travel restrictions at that time. And it seems like there's literally no place that you can run and hide. Usually if something hard is going on here, you think, well, I'm, I, we'll go there, you know. We'll travel here, we'll do this, we'll do that. But in reality, the conditions are pretty much the same wherever you travel and wherever you go. Uh, there just seems like there's no place to run and hide. I mean, if the virus doesn't kill us, isolation and depression just might get us. So how have you been coping? with all of this stuff. Zoom meetings, binge watching on Netflix. One of my major coping skills is humor. Sometimes it's mine, but it's usually the humor of other people. So I'm gonna share a little bit with you today and I expect you to laugh uproariously about each one of these things. Okay, here's the first one, pay attention. My husband purchased a world map and then gave me a dart and said, throw this and wherever it lands, that's where I'm taking you when the pandemic ends. Turns out we're spending two weeks behind the fridge. <laughs> I need to practice social distancing from the fridge. Public service announcement. Every few days, try on your jeans just to make sure they fit. Pajamas will have you believing all is well in the kingdom. This morning I saw a neighbor talking to her cat. It was obvious she thought her cat understood her. I came into the house, told my dog, and we laughed a lot. I'll tell you a coronavirus joke, but you'll have to wait two weeks to see if you got it. <laughs> Today I'm preaching on a section from what's known as the Upper Room Discourse, or the Final Discourse of Jesus. And if this were taking place, the Upper Room thing was happening in 2021, it might look something like this. Have you seen this before? Some of you got it figured out? Let's stand for closing prayer. That's all we need. Joking aside... If Jesus were to step into this room physically today, I think there's a pretty good chance that he would repeat the words that we're going to start this message with from John 14.1. Different translations. Let not your heart be troubled. Don't let yourselves be disturbed. You must not let yourselves be distressed. Don't let this rattle you. Don't worry or surrender to your fear. Don't get lost in despair. There are two things that I think make those words especially powerful and encouraging. First is who said them. Jesus himself, the maker of heaven and earth, time and eternity, and us. The one who said this is our omnipotent, omniscient, omnipresent, loving Savior and Lord. The second thing that gives give those words power and impact is that they are followed by some specific reasons why we can be encouraged in the middle of the chaos. And those are outlined in the verses. By the way, I've included an outline. I don't know if that's a regular thing for you anymore, uh, given Dave's style, but it's mine. So if you want to fill in a few blanks, one good thing about an outline, it helps us uh, you know, continue to interact during the message, but it also lets you know how close to the end I am. So that's another good reason for an outline. So if you want to follow that through, fill in a few blanks, uh, that would be great. And I'm going to see if I can read from this uh, NIV with very small print. I have noticed over the years that print
print has gotten smaller. Any of you notice that, by the way? All right. Here's some reasons to be encouraged, even in the middle of a chaos. First one is your future is bright. Your future is bright. John 14, do not let your hearts be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. My father's house has many rooms. If that were not so, would I have told you that I'm going to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come back and take you to be with me that you may also be where I am. John 13, that's the chapter right before John 14, by the way. John 13 is, uh, describes the things that were happening in the upper room right before Jesus said this. So we want to put it in some context. Sometimes we romanticize what took place in the upper room. Passover meal, foot washing, the initiating of the Lord's Supper. Matter of fact, there was an old hymn written about this, and I don't remember singing it very much. Sue, maybe you remember this one, I don't know, but it's called In the Upper Room with Jesus. And here's some lyrics, they're beautiful lyrics. In the upper room with Jesus, sitting at his nail-scarred feet, Oh, what rich and full communion, fellowship divine and sweet. There's a place for all the weak and weary, a place where all may find real peace. In the upper room with Jesus, all our cares and heartaches cease. Aren't those beautiful words, beautiful lyrics? In fact, however, the upper room was not like that at all. The upper room was more like a war room than it was a retreat center. First of all, Jesus announced, as they're getting ready to share the Passover, that he was about to die. Can you imagine having your Thanksgiving dinner and having the host stand up and say, uh, oh, by the way, I've got terminal cancer and I will be gone in a week. And that's basically what Jesus announced. So there's this feeling of abandonment, bewilderment, because these guys had committed their lives to Jesus. And he's a young man, he's in his 30s. And he's saying, I'm going to die. What led up to the foot washing? was the ongoing argument among the 12 about who would be the greatest in the kingdom. It's like power struggles that I've seen in churches, squabbling and at leadership and congregational meetings. Because that's what's going on in the upper room as well, the squabbling about who is going to be first, who is going to be the chairman, who is going to be the lead. The instituting of the Lord's Supper was marked by some troubling announcements. Jesus said that the bread and wine symbolized the excruciating, brutal death he was about to die. So this is this sweet little snack that we have right now. He said, let me tell you what this really means. He also announced that one of this tight-knit band of brothers would, in fact, sell him out to the enemies. And, of course, we know that was Judas, who was the treasurer. Finally, he said that Peter, the most outspoken and ardent disciple, would actually turn his back and deny Jesus when, when he was going to need his support the most. So rather than being this sweet retreat center with a lot of laughter and warm fuzzies and sweetness and light this upper room was filled with drama and trauma everybody is dazed and confused it would get even more intense of course when they went from here after all the stuff going on in the upper room to Gethsemane and then on to Calvary Troubled disciples in first century Jerusalem and 21st century Seneca County need these comforting words of hope for a brighter future. 
If you want more details about Jesus, what Jesus was talking about, I'm going to go and prepare a place for you. You can go to places like Revelation 21 and 22 on the new home that Jesus is preparing for us. Something grander than anything in the Hamptons, grander than the White House, grander than Buckingham Palace. When we die or he returns, we're going to move in. We're moving on up, folks, way past the east side. And we're moving in debt-free. Never see a mortgage payment. It's all been taken care of. Of course, the best thing about this new house in heaven is the people are going to be there. And the fact that we're going to be there, the saints of all of the ages, together with the Lord in person. We're going to have eternity to enjoy his presence and to enjoy each other while exploring the new heavens and the new earth. I could try to wax more eloquent about that, but according to 1 Corinthians 2, 9, it says it like this, no one's ever seen or heard anything like this, never so much as imagined anything quite like it, what God has arranged for those who love him. For Christ followers, the best days are always ahead. Our best days are always ahead. The best days are not behind us. The best days are not now. The best days are always ahead of us. One commentator put it like this. Jesus came to earth to prepare man for heaven. He left earth to prepare heaven for man. Before leaving this section, I want to say a little bit more about Jesus' return. I've never been able to easily connect the dots. Some people can do this, but I've never been able to connect the dots between today's headlines and Bible prophecies. Now, I, I admire people can do that, but I'm also a little skeptical of those who make definite statements about the signs of the times where Russia, China, and the USA fit into all of it. I've always contended that the rapture of the church is the prophetic event before which there are no signs. Everybody's going to be surprised by the rapture. And I also believe that the major prophetic events are going to take place during the seven-year tribulation period while we're enjoying the marriage supper of the Lamb uh, with the Lord and his church. But it's hard to ignore the things that have taken place since March 2020, isn't it? Prophetic passages in Daniel and Revelation describe a one-world ruler, one-world religion, worldwide lawlessness, wars, and pestilence. Without setting dates or making predictions, we can see how quickly events can shape up. Haven't you been amazed at that? How quickly things can change, and we say, oh, now I can see how that would happen. Romans 13, 11, you know what sort of times we live in, and so you should live property, properly. It's time for us, to pre, for us to wake up. You know that the day when we will be saved is nearer now than when we first put our faith in Christ. Troubled hearts can be encouraged by the fact that the future is bright. The future is bright. We can also be encouraged by the fact that the pathway is clear. We're going to pick it up in verse 4. John 14, 4. You know the way to the place where I am going. Thomas said to him, Lord, we don't know where you're going, so how can we know the way? Jesus answered, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. Every small group, every Sunday school class, every leadership team needs a Thomas. Not so much the doubter or the skeptic as someone who is gut honest. 
Are you like that, or do you, have you ever been in groups with people that are always asking the questions that are kind of beneath the surface? I call them questions in the cracks. They're the kind of questions my wife asks after I preach, and usually I can't give her a quick answer. I've got to really think about the things that she's bringing up. Well, Thomas was like that. He took Jesus literally when he spoke about the future home, and he wanted specific directions on how to get there. Jesus said, I'm going away. This is where I'm going, and you know how to get there. And uh, and Tom says, wait, we got a GPS? We, you know, how, how do we know? How do we know to get where you're talking about? It's an honest question that sets the stage for one of Jesus' most succinct, profound statements about himself, the I am statements. He says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Deep theologians, dynamic Bible preachers have written and spoken volumes about those three words. What does it mean that he was the way, the truth, and the life? Now, I don't fit into either of those categories, but that's not going to keep me from making uh, a few observations about those things. We often relate John 14, 6, where Jesus said, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. We've often related that to initial salvation. <clears throat> Rather than giving a list of directions to heaven, Jesus says that we are to follow him there because he is the way. Jesus didn't point and he said, there's the way. What did he say? Follow me. Follow me. I am the way. Go to Walmart. They still have one of those in town, don't they? Where's the super glue? Can you show me the super glue? Sometimes they'll say, well, you know, if you go 14 aisles over, over and down there, but then a lot of times you'll have an associate that'll say, I'll take you there. Just follow me. That's the idea. He's saying, well, where's heaven? How do we get there? Jesus said, follow me. I'll take you right there. Jesus not a pointer. He's the leader. I like the newly minted term Christ follower for that reason because I want to learn and follow Jesus as revealed in his word and in real life experiences with him. And I see Jesus by his working in the lives of other Christ followers, like I've seen it in many of you. Lord, what are the next steps? Where should I go next? Jesus says, not just for salvation, but for life, follow me. Follow me. What does it mean that Jesus is the truth? Colossians 2, 3 it is in him and in him alone that men will find all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. One of the most difficult things of life since March of 2020 has been trying to figure out who to believe and what to believe. I mean, which experts do you really follow? Who do you believe about the source of the virus? Who do you believe about gathering restrictions and about masks and distancing? What do you believe about the vaccine? Do you believe what you hear on CNN or Fox News or the CDC or the WHO? Do you listen to the conservatives or the liberals, the moderates, the right wing, the left right wing, the, the center? Do you trust what you read on Facebook or Twitter or the Drudge Report? Who's given real news and who's giving fake news? 
Sincere, intelligent believers have come to different conclusions about areas that are not clearly spelled out in God's words. We're talking about dealing with things that are extra-biblical, okay? They're not talked about necessarily directly in the word. Now, our response is, our response is talked about, but these particular things, we're, not, we're having a hard time getting the directions that we need. And unfortunately, differences of perspective on these things have divided Christians and family members and friends from one to another. And I'll bet in your family and in your circle of friends and even here at the church, there are people that are on different sides of these issues. And that's been one of the sad, sad things that I've seen that, that Satan, I believe, has used this situation to divide believers over things that are not clearly spelled out in God's word. Some churches have chosen to follow all of the directives of the CDC and others have chosen not to. Now I have to admit, I can't figure it all out. <clears throat> so I take comfort. I'm always looking for good comfort passages. And this one really seems to fit the situation for me. Psalm 131, one through three. O oh Lord, my heart is not conceited. My eyes do not look down on others. I am not involved in things too big or too difficult for me. Instead, I have kept my soul calm and quiet. My soul is content as a weaned child is content in its mother's arms. Israel, put your hope in the Lord, now and forever. Now, I think we need to be informed, certainly to make decisions about these things. We do the best that we can. And where we don't understand, we ask the Lord for his discernment as we read and ponder the information from various sources. But I think we need to primarily focus on the things that we know for sure rather than spending most of our time and energy in speculation. If, in fact, Jesus is the truth, let's learn more about him. Let's trust him to guide us, to protect us, in the things that we don't understand. We focus on the things that we do understand, and then we trust God with the things that we don't understand. Let's leave the judgment to God rather than usurping his position by judging those with whom we don't agree on these areas. Finally, Jesus is the giver of life, all life, physical and spiritual, mortal and eternal, and even emotional, John 10.10 10. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I came so that they would have life and have it abundantly. I take this to mean living a full life, an abundant life, through a pandemic. I take this to mean living a full and abundant life even through social distancing. I take this to mean living a full and abundant life, even if it has to be done from behind a mask for a period of time. By the way, we're all going to die from something. Right? We're all going to die from something. COVID is not the only thing that kills people one thing, but it's not everything. That's the reality. That's the reality of the life that we live today. And it's in that situation that we have the need to trust God and trust in him forever. 
He's the giver of all of life. He's the only one who can do this because the, he's the only one. Jesus is the only one who can connect us directly to God. When we try to find life in any other person or any other experience or possession or religion or philosophy, we're going to be disappointed. Christ followers, don't let your heart be troubled because your future is bright. And because the way is clear. Another reason that comes out in this passage, and that is that your faith is valid. Your faith is valid. Let's pick it up in verse 7. If you really know me, you will know my father as well. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. Philip said, Lord, how, uh, show us the father and that will be enough for us. Jesus answered, don't you know me, Philip, even after I've been among you such a long time? Anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Don't you believe that I am in the Father and that the Father is in me? The words that I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority. Rather, it is the Father living in me who is doing this work. Believe me when I say that I am in the Father and the Father is in me, or at least believe in the evidence of the works themselves. No one on earth knew Jesus better than these guys. Men that were sitting around the table on this Thursday night so many years ago. <clears throat> I mean, they'd been, they'd been through a lot. It was a relationship of teacher and students, of master and servants, traveling companions and a guide, band of brothers, the closest of friends. They knew that Jesus was a man of God, and they knew that Jesus was the son of God, but there was one more step that they needed to take in their faith. And this time, it's Phil that makes the ultimate request. Jesus, you and the Father are so close. Could you, like, give us a picture of him? Could you cause him to materialize in this room right now? At least get him online. Maybe a Zoom conference. Anything. Even a pre-recorded YouTube would be just fine. Phil asked for that final assurance that God himself was with them in the middle of the crisis. And Jesus' answer frames the foundation, foundational doctrine of Christianity, and that is this. Jesus himself is God. Jesus is God. When these men were with him around a table, in the same boat, on a hillside, or at a wedding, they were with God himself. The profound words that they heard and the miraculous works that they witnessed were compelling evidence of this basic truth. Now, the disciples had flashes of recognition along the way, especially when their lives were in danger or the challenges were overwhelming. They saw him calm that stormy sea. They saw him feed the crowds. <clears throat> they saw him healing the sick and raising the dead. Some of you uh, anglers can truly identify what does it convince of some of these guys that Jesus was God when they had a great day fishing, right? I mean, when the fish really came in, <laughs> there is a God and Jesus is him. So they saw that from time to time. Jesus himself was God in the flesh. Christ is God. Most of in, you in this room and others have faith in God, but always want, we always want more evidence, especially in the middle of a crisis. 
when our hearts are troubled. I don't know who put this together, but I've been looking at it for several years, and it's been an encouragement to me, and I hope it will be you too, Dave. It's got a really catchy title, simply Jesus. All divine names and titles are applied to him. He's called God, the mighty God, the great God, God over all, Jehovah, Lord, the Lord of lords and King of kings. All divine attributes are ascribed to him. He is declared to be omnipresent, omniscient, almighty, and immutable, the same yesterday, today, and forever. He is set forth as the creator and upholder and ruler of the universe. All things were created by him and for him, and by him all things consist. He is the object of worship to all intelligent creatures, even the highest of all, the angels. All creatures between man and God are commanded to prostrate themselves before him. He is the object of all religious sentiments of reverence, love, faith, and devotion. To him, men and angels are responsible for their character and conduct. He required that Men should honor him as they honor the Father. They should exercise the same faith in him that they do in God. He declares that he and the Father are one, that those who had seen him had seen the Father also. He calls all men unto him, promises to forgive their sins, to send them the Holy Spirit, to give them rest and peace, to raise them up on the last day, and to give them eternal life. God is not more and cannot promise more or do more than Christ is said to be, to promise and to do. He has therefore been the Christian's God from the beginning in all ages and in all places. When your hearts are troubled, remember that your future is bright, that the path is clear, that your faith in Jesus is valid, and finally, that the possibilities are endless. We'll pick it up at verse 12. Very truly I tell you, whoever believes in me will do the works I have been doing, and they will do even greater things than these, because I am going to the Father. And I will do whatever you ask in my name, so that the Father may be glorified in the Son. You may ask anything in my name, and I will do it. The possibilities are endless. Contained in these last three verses are two mind-blowing promises that, quite frankly, we have a hard time believing. I have a hard time believing them. First of all, that after Jesus' departure to heaven, his followers would accomplish greater works than he did when he was on the earth. Now, these disciples did some of the things that Jesus did, healings, exorcisms, raising the dead. Not quite as many as Jesus did or as grand, but they did some of it. I've been a Christ follower <clears throat> from my childhood, through adolescence, adulthood, in the ministry for over 50 years. But I've never seen, I've never seen it. I've never been there when it happened. I've never seen cancer cured. I've never seen demons cast out. I've never seen a corpse brought back to life. I've never seen anybody walk on water, even though we do live in Portland. That's a different kind of walking on water. The only time I've ever seen food multiplied is when I said supersize it at McDonald's. I haven't been able to read minds or predict future events with detailed accuracy. I have to tell you something, though. The closest thing that I've ever seen to a miracle is what happened right here at Seneca Community Church 10 years ago. 
to see what God has done in this church. Absolutely phenomenal. And it was so amazing that I knew it was him. Far beyond my pay grade. There are some Christians who have made claims and they said, I've seen it or I've done it. But that has not been my experience. I cannot tell you of a miracle that I personally have seen in the way that I would define miracles. I've seen wonderful things happen, but I haven't seen it where nature is so completely defied. Maybe this promise that they were going to do greater things was specifically directed toward the men in that room that night, referring to the establishment and expansion of the church of Jesus Christ around the world. Second fantastic promise was that they would get absolutely everything that they prayed for. He said, if you ask it in my name, whatever, whatever, I'll do it. My guess is that every one of us have prayed in Jesus' name for things that haven't happened yet. A friend or a family member that you've wanted to see come to Christ for years hasn't happened yet. For the miraculous and complete healing of a loved one with terminal cancer. Praying that our candidate would be elected or re-elected. Praying that the pandemic would end quickly and that no one in our circle of family and friends would get COVID-19 or die from it. This and other passages seem to place conditions and disclaimers on the promise. These prayers we read here and elsewhere need to be prayed according to his will. They need to be in line with his plans and purposes and in line with his character. That's the essence of praying in Jesus' name. From a logical standpoint, can you imagine God giving unqualified power like that to just anybody, to some crazy people or some people who go crazy with the power. I think one of the best indications of that, if you've ever seen the old movie Bruce Almighty, and that's a crazy movie, but one of the things that it focuses on is that a man is given the powers of God for a period of time, and the ridiculous thing that he does with those powers is exactly what we would do would be like giving a shotgun to a two-year-old, right? all over the place. And so you say, well, that doesn't, that doesn't make any sense. So we understand why there have to be some limitations around this promise. And again, maybe it was just limited to the disciples in the upper room that night. But other passages seem to say the same thing to a broader audience. What does it mean? <clears throat> like Tom and Phil, some of you have honest questions about these fantastic promises that haven't been kept yet. What are the greater works? Where is the answered prayer? And if you have those questions, you be sure to ask Dave when he gets back, and I'm sure he'll have some great answers for you. Maybe I'll take a shot at responding to them. What if, despite our limited understanding, we were to take Jesus' promises at face value, by faith? Let's assume that the greater things have, in fact, been accomplished in his name since his return to heaven. Things even greater than walking on the water. Things that are greater than giving sight to the blind or healing to the lame, curing disease, feeding thousands, or even raising the dead. Now keep in mind that Jesus' earthly ministry was only about three years long. In a tiny corner of the world with relatively small numbers of people, ten lepers here, 
a few demoniacs, an adulteress, a prostitute, a few fishermen, two thieves on crosses. By contrast, since then, the gospel has covered the globe with millions of people being saved for time and eternity. There have been ministries to the dying, the disenfranchised, prisoners, the military, colleges, uh, assault perpetrators, and victims, poor and rich, have been changed. While the greater works may not be greater in kind, they are definitely greater in extent and impact for the kingdom. I wouldn't be surprised to learn that you've seen some of that even during the pandemic. For one thing, for sure, you did the online thing here, did you? Get online and I'll bet there were people that tuned into that broadcast that have never been to Seneca Community Church. And I'll bet there are people that tuned into those broadcasts that have never been to church at all, anywhere. For years, pastors have been talking about, how do we get the church out of the box? How do we get them out of the building? Pandemic is one way. You think that could happen? Do you think greater things could happen even because of the crisis that we've gone through? Rather than grumbling and groaning and worrying and whining about the pandemic and other troubling issues, this is the time that we continue to think creatively and engage actively and invest generously in expanding the kingdom of Jesus Christ until he comes or we go. There is no higher purpose and there is no greater work than that. In which of the greater works? Are you involved in the greater works, the bigger things that God is doing? While unanswered prayers can be troubling, I think unprayed prayers are the bigger problem. One of the 12 disciples, Jesus' half-brother James, addressed this in, in his little epistle. James 2, 3 says, you don't have the things you want because you don't pray for them. When you pray for things, you don't get them because you want them for the wrong reason, for your own pleasure. What might happen if we engaged our troubled hearts in these troubled times as we saw them in a call to prayer individually and corporately? Not just any old prayer but bigger requests that we've never even prayed before, assuming that Jesus meant it when he said, when we ask these things in his name, he will do it. If it isn't according to his will, sometimes, well, what if it isn't according to his will? What if it's not according to his plan? What if it's not according to his awareness of what's best? You know what? When we make these requests, Jesus can say no. Or he can say not yet. Because he is sovereign. If we continue to ask, he just might reshape our requests to fit into his bigger works. I have a feeling there would be far fewer troubled hearts if there was more trust in prayer. Individually and corporately. To disciples in the middle of chaos, in the middle of crisis, drama and trauma, Jesus says, don't let your hearts be troubled. Because your future is bright, because the path is clear, because your faith is valid, and the possibilities are endless. I want you to turn to somebody that's not too far away from you, and I want you to say this to them. Don't let your heart be troubled. You say that? Don't let your heart be troubled. Boy, the next time we get into that whining jag and complaining jag, and I've been there with you. 
We need to hear these words from Jesus. Children, don't let your heart be troubled. Really? Really? Let's bow in prayer. <clears throat> Jesus, this is a good passage for today. It's a good passage for our lives, for whatever we're dealing with at this point. But there's some things that we have in common that we've all been dealing with for the last year and a half or so. And I pray that we will take these words of yours to heart. First of all, because you said them. You told us not to let our hearts be troubled. And also to remember reasons why our hearts can be calmed and they can be encouraged. Because we've got such a bright future ahead. The fact that the way is clear. The fact that our faith in you is valid and the fact that even in times like this, the possibilities are endless. Lord, I do pray continually now for Seneca Community Church. Thank you so much for her life. Thank you for her impact in this area. Thank you for Pastor Dave and Cindy and the, the staff here, the leaders here, Lord. And I pray that you continue to have them focus directly on you and not be troubled by the things that are happening around us. And we pray this in the wonderful, strong name of Jesus, who is God. And everybody said, amen. amen.